You may be seated. You know, this last week, the Kansas City Royals won the World Series. If you're a baseball fan like me, you notice these things. Uh, And something happened after the World Series was over. It it didn't just end and that's it and nobody else thought about baseball again. But but rather, a couple days later in downtown Kansas City, some 800,000 people gathered together, all dressed in their royal blue and, and as they gathered there, they did so because a team that had represented them had won a great victory on their behalf. And they wanted to celebrate. It's much the same what we do every Sunday when we gather here, isn't it? We, we gather together because a great victory has been won on our behalf by one who represents us. And because he has won that victory on our behalf, we want to celebrate. And so we gather together in, in a place and we recite the accomplishments of this one who has represented us so well, this one of whom we are so proud, this one who has brought us and ultimately himself, much glory. It's what this is all about, God's glory. It's really what life is to be all about, God's glory. And it's certainly what the Lord's Prayer is all about, God's glory. Two months ago, we began a series looking at the Lord's Prayer. Today, we've reached the end. Two months back, we began looking at the fact that in Matthew 6, we see a model for prayer, and and we see that true prayer is not full of, of concern for appearances. It's not full of meaningless words. It's not full of selfish desires. But rather, we learn that prayer is first and foremost about God. It's about his person, about his work, and ultimately about his glory. That's exactly where we end today with the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Before we look at this passage, though, I want to stop and just ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. So would you please pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for this time. We thank you for your great work on our behalf. And we thank you especially for Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you work in our hearts now during this time, cause them to love you all the more, Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And Lord, take this time and and multiply it. Multiply it in the sense that as we, we eventually leave from this place, use the things that have been said here and the workings of your spirit in our hearts through your word, which is living and active to to conform us to the likeness of Christ and shape us into the people that you would have us be, that we might live out our lives for the publication of your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, here we are. We've gotten to the end of the Lord's Prayer. Next week we'll begin a series on on the Gospel of Luke. It will take more than two months to get through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, But it's taken us two months to get through the Lord's Prayer. And and we've gotten to the point where we, we get to the end, this conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. And, and we want to see what it means to us and what it means for us, what the Lord would have us know about himself and his person and his work and how it applies to our lives and, and how it works its way out in our lives. And, and all of these truths, just like we have for all of the sermons in this series, but, but before we even look at those things, there, there is a prior question that we have to ask for this passage. And the question is this. Is this conclusion to the Lord's Prayer a biblical conclusion to the Lord's Prayer? Now perhaps you say, Pete, what what exactly do you mean by that? I mean, of course it's a biblical conclusion. I've prayed the Lord's Prayer my whole life, and I've always prayed these words at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, You know, I've got a pew Bible in the rack in front of me. I just opened it up. I look, page 853 of the pew Bible Right there in Matthew 6.13, these very words are printed. If you can't, I mean, I don't think you can get more biblical than saying, there it is in the Bible right there, right? And so, so in that sense, I, I suppose you could just jump to the conclusion that indeed, this is absolutely biblical. Well, if you ask me, is the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer biblical? My answer to you would be this. It depends what you mean. You see, yes, it is in your pew Bible. But there are many Bibles that you will not find this phrase. There there will, in the Lord's Prayer, come to the point where you say, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's the end. And they just leave out, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's, It's just omitted altogether. And... And you might wonder why, why that is. Why, why is it that many modern translations, including the English Standard Version, which is my translation of choice that I, I think is very, very faithful, it, it, it does not include that phrase, although there is a, a footnote in the ESV. And in that footnote it says, some, some manuscripts add, for thine is the kingdom of glory and the power forever and ever. Uh, it, it, it has that listed there. You see... What happens is, many, many, many years ago, people wrote the Bible. They wrote it in Greek, and there were these old manuscripts, and, and uh, it was long enough ago that they didn't just have a Xerox machine that they could make copies. And so what they had was scribes, and scribes would sit down, and, and they would copy uh, word by word, diligently looking through it and making a copy. And so that's how you got copies of the Bible, was, was from somebody sitting down and writing it out, letter by letter, word by word. The problem is that, that as scribes were, were copying it, sometimes they would also write in comments. Or, or they, they would sometimes make mistakes. And, and so you did have these, these different additions and, and subtractions that would occur in these copings of these ancient manuscripts. And so what we look at now through, through different efforts through archaeology and history and looking through them, we, we see that, that the most ancient of manuscripts, the, the most 
most reliable of manuscripts don't include this phrase. And so I, I think that, that most likely it probably wasn't part of the original Lord's Prayer as it was given by the Lord to his disciples. It was recorded in Scripture, not part of it. So let's consider this. If we leave it out altogether, is that what we're supposed to do? Well, well, there is some beautiful symmetry if we do leave it out. As Frederick Dale Bruner puts, he says, the Lord's Prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and it embraces everything of importance in life. It is kind of symmetrical, it's nice, it's tidy if we do it that way. But there's the fact that we've all learned the Lord's Prayer with those words, and and it just feels kind of foreign to us to leave them out. And so what should we do about that? I think we need to ask the question. Is it a biblical conclusion to the Lord's Prayer? And like I said, it depends what you mean by that. Because if you're asking, well, was it originally in the Bible? I I think the answer is probably not. We can't say with absolute certainty, but I, I think that probably it wasn't. But if by, is it a biblical conclusion, what you're asking is, does it accurately reflect biblical theology in what it says? then indeed, absolutely it does. It is a beautiful statement of profoundly biblical theology. And beyond that, it's a wonderful summation of where we've been in the Lord's Prayer. It it kind of wraps it up and it says, "This this is all the stuff that we've prayed about. This is what we've been saying all along in this prayer. You see, the biblical truths with which it's filled are ever present. You know, it's, it's great to know truth about God. We want to read our Bible to learn truth, to, to have points of doctrine that fill our minds. That's why it's great to go to a Sunday school class, and it's great to read your Bible and learn these things. And, and we want to do that so we have this head knowledge. It's a wonderful thing. But head knowledge itself is not enough. Uh, James 2, verse 19, we famously read, You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. You see, the demons of hell have great theology. They understand doctrine far better than you and I. But there's something missing. What is it that differentiates one who has merely head knowledge who knows lots of truths, who who maybe could win a Bible trivia contest, who who could... read forward and backward, recite to you Westminster and the the larger catechism and the shorter catechism and the confession, and they know all those things, but, but there's still something missing. What is it that sets us apart as children of God? And I think it's lordship. It's lordship. It's not just knowing truths, but it's saying that there is there's an impact of knowing those truths. Knowing that Jesus died for my sins. Knowing that that he is the son of God who set aside his glory. Who took on human flesh. who, Who walked for three decades on this earth as a human being just like you and me. And then he died a substitutionary death on our behalf. On the cross paying the penalty for our sins. It is good to know those things in your mind. But if it does nothing to your heart, 
And you must question whether you are truly his. But you see, if, if we look to him to be not only our savior intellectually, but our Lord volitionally, our heart's desire, longing to follow him, then that is an accurate representation of how we should respond to those truths. We need to respond to him as Lord, and so we should have pure, unadulterated worship. As Mick called it before, doxology. This this glory unto God. We read that passage in Ephesians 3, and you know, the book of Ephesians is by Paul. It follows a, a basic pattern that Paul usually uses in his writings. He begins by by speaking of a lot of truths, a lot of things that are true about God and true about us in Christ and and what Christ did for us. And and there are all these truths, historical truths and truths of the faith. And and he lays them all out there for us. And then there usually becomes a point where he kind of shifts gears. He says, in light of all that God has done for you in Christ, therefore, do these things. And he, he begins to instruct and tell us what to do. But there's a thing in Ephesians here that, that he does before he goes on to the instruction of, of what you are to do. After he's looked at all these things that God has done, he pauses for a second and he just worships. He just worships. He just gives glory to God. He, he, he has said in these first three chapters all these things he's done. And then here in verse 14, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. He says, For this reason, for all that he has done, I, I bow my knees. I pray. I, I, I need to go before the Lord and I just pray to him. Again, prayer is not just us asking what we can get. It's not about us per se. It's more about God. And so he says, because of what God has done, I, I pray to him. And I pray that he would, according to the riches of his glory, because he is magnificent, because he is holy, because he is marvelous, he is glorious, because of those riches, pray that he would strengthen you all in the faith. That's what he says. And, and he says that, that being so strengthened that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Just stop for a second and think about that. Think, think about how great God's love is. Think, think about what it would be. Our, our minds, you know, we have finite minds. They can't really comprehend the infinite. But that's what he's saying. I, I'm praying that you, your finite minds would be able to grasp the infinite here. That you would be able to comprehend the width of God's love, the length of God's love, the depth of God's love, the height of God's love, that you would, you would really be able to grasp this, not just with your, your feeble efforts that, that you can muster up from within, but that God would give you the strength to truly understand these things as they really are, that you would truly understand them and you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And, and Paul's getting excited here. You can see him. It just, just, this is incredible to think about these things, how wonderful God's love is. And he, he just says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. Isn't it incredible to think? You know, you think about, boy, I wish God would do this. And I think God could do this, and I, I'd love to see him do that. But, but we're shooting way too low, is what Paul says. He said he, he could do so much more 
than you would ever think or hope or even imagine. You can't even come up with within your most grandiose wishes and desires and dreams. All the things that God can do. And he, he says according to the power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever. Let that glory just keep rolling on forever and ever and ever. It's kind of like you know, the, the Mississippi River. It's a huge river. It's big. And I always wondered living in St. Louis when I was growing up. You know, the, it flows down from Minnesota and down into the Gulf of Mexico. And this, this water just pours out. Just, just, just thousands and millions of gallons of water just pouring by every day. And it's like, well, how does it keep coming? You know, isn't it going to run out of water eventually? And it just keeps going and going and going. And that's how the love of God is. It's just so great and his glory is so magnificent. And it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And it never runs out. It goes on forever and ever and ever. Paul does the same thing in Romans. This great theological treatise, this, this logical argument that's set forth oftentimes throughout history, the uh, of, of law schools. They've used the book of Romans as kind of a, a structure of, of what it looks like to have a logical argument. And so they, they use that as kind of a, a, a standard. And for 16 chapters, Paul's been mining the depths of, of the deepest truths of, of theology and, and God and his person and work and the beauty of those things. And then, then having spent 16 chapters looking at this, he finally says now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, having come face to face with God and all he's done, Paul has just moved to doxology. He has to worship. And that's the proper reaction to coming face to face with God. And that should be our reaction to the Lord's Prayer. It should be kind of a knee-jerk reaction. We shouldn't even have to think about it. It should just, should just happen when we pray the Lord's Prayer. And we, we think about if we're really praying the Lord's Prayer and not just saying the Lord's Prayer or reciting the Lord's Prayer. You know, when I was a kid, I used to, used to try to say the Lord's Prayer as fast as I could. I wanted to see how fast I could say it. I was able to actually, a true story, I'm not proud of it, but it's a true story. I, I could say the Lord's Prayer in less than eight seconds. That's pretty fast. It's pretty impressive, you know? You just, done. Amen. But you see, I, I wasn't praying the Lord's Prayer when I would do that, was I? I was just stringing together syllables. <laughs> it, it was just meaningless words remember where we began the lord's prayer specifically with with christ saying that that it wasn't to be when you prayed like the empty words that is are brought forth by those who are are not believers you see the lord's prayer is not a a magic formula it's not a, a an incantation you know it's not not abracadabra hocus pocus 
not it at all. Rather, it's a pattern that Christ has given us that we might pray in accordance with his will. And all our prayer can conform to this pattern. All our prayer should conform to this pattern. And as it does, we'll be driven to consider more and more the greatness and glory of God, which in turn drives us more and more to doxology, to worship. You know, praise in general is commensurate with greatness, isn't it? You know, I mentioned the Royals winning the World Series. You know, they had 800,000 people showed up for the, the victory celebration. Let's say on the same day the Tigers had thrown a, a big celebration downtown Detroit. Do you think 800,000 people would have shown up for it? Probably not. You see, because they had kind of a disappointing season. They weren't all that great this year. You know, they've had other years where they've been really good. Some years where they've been kind of good. This year was kind of down. People don't want to get together and celebrate and praise a team that's not very good. Well, even if it was a team that, you know, the Mets, they made it to the World Series. They were, they were really good this year. But they didn't have a victory parade, a celebration in New York. You see, we truly celebrate in correspondence to something's greatness. We, we praise those things that are great. Now, there's one exception to that, of course. Lots of times parents will praise their children, you know, above and beyond really the level of their greatness. Now, now it, it's hard to, uh, I don't know, how do I say this? It's, it's hard for me to go overboard like some parents do because, because my kids are so great, you know. <laughs> no, but we do that, don't we? You know, why do we do that? Well, it's because we love our children. We love them dearly. And so, so because we love them so dearly, we, we want to praise them and we, we desire to praise them. And, and so we see these two things. Actual greatness and love. Now let's consider God. How great is God? Well, <laughs> he is infinitely great, isn't he? That's why we began our worship today. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hand have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. God is great, magnificent. And so we sing of his greatness. But he's also done an amazing thing. He's not just infinitely great, he's infinitely good. He has made us his children. And so we sang just a few moments ago, I'm a child of the king, a child of the king with Jesus, my savior. I'm a child of the king. And what's glorious about it is 
when God adopted us as children, as Jason Holopolis said at our conference a few weeks back, he didn't just adopt orphans. He adopted enemies. Isn't that incredible? Think about that. We weren't just these cute little helpless orphans. We were enemies of God against him. And he poured out his love. He loved us so greatly that in Christ Jesus, he adopted us as his own children. We love because he first loved us. And we have every reason in the world to love him. So we have a God who is infinitely great, a God who is infinitely good, and so we have a God who should be infinitely praised. And that's why the prayer concludes with these words, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Infinitely, eternally, forever. That's the focus of the Lord's Prayer. The glory of God. And that we might proclaim it, we might be about it, we might see that God gets the attention he deserves, that he gets the honor he deserves, that it's directed toward him and not toward us. That we are even reminded of this fact ourselves as we pray the Lord's Prayer. We're reminded of his greatness. We're reminded of his goodness. And we're reminded that that prayer isn't just some means by which we, we try to break down the door to get into God and steal the things that he has in, in his house that he's withholding from us. But rather, prayer is a means by which we come into his presence and he, he richly and generously and willingly blesses us, pouring out blessings upon blessings upon blessings. Because God is great and God is good. We can heed the words of Paul in Philippians 4 verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. We can do that knowing that that if we in our sin, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will God give good gifts to us? I want to close with a quick example of this. In Second Chronicles 14, there's a, a story of King Asa of Judah. He is preparing to do battle with Zerah, the Ethiopian. Zerah has a million men in service behind him. More than twice as many as Asa has. Asa needed to come up with something to win the battle. Asa did not depend upon his weapons and his technology. He did not depend upon his military strategy and his wisdom. He did not depend upon having more manpower, more strength. No, in 2 Chronicles 14, verse 11, we read what he did. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, 
our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. He prayed. And notice the direction of his prayer. He he doesn't say, let not these men prevail against me. Let not man prevail against you. Let me be about your work and your glory, advancing your kingdom. You win the victory. Let me be on your team. Asa cried to the Lord his God, and we read in verse 12, So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. He prayed. We need to pray. We pray the Lord's Prayer every week in worship. That's a good thing. But in our private worship, we can pray it as well. We should. And not just pray its words. Again, pray its pattern, its thought, its content. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the Lord's Prayer is the Christian's daily companion and prayer book. In it, we have Jesus' own priorities and prayers, but if we learn how to form our prayers into closer conformity to the divine will, through it we are assured that our prayers are according to the will of God, and so surely heard. Don't we want our prayers answered? (laughs) Isn't that what we all want? If we want our prayers to be answered, then pray them according to the will of God. Do it when we pray together. Do it. When you pray on your own, and may your desires be shaped by his desires. Let us pray today in a prayer that, that looks like and sounds like and even echoes that prayer that we will pray one day. One day when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation when he returns, when he sets all things to rights, when we gather around the throne of the Lamb of God, and all who are his will say, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom has come. Your will is done. Heaven and earth have been made one. You have forgiven our sins. You have put an end to temptation. You have delivered us from evil. And yours, O Lord Jesus, is the kingdom. And yours, O Lord Jesus, is the power. And yours, O Lord Jesus, is the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 Should nothing of our effort stand, no legacy survive unless the Lord does raise the
house in vain its builders strive to you who boast tomorrow's gain tell me what is your life a mist that vanishes a dawn all Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead 
our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.